Okay, everybody. Hopefully we are now in fact, live for real this time. This is our third effort to go live for uh, today's program on the unfortunate shooting death of the tiger in the Naples Zoo. Uh, we have some thoughts from a legal perspective on that use of force as it goes. And hopefully all of you are here for that. Sorry about the uh, delay, folks. Yeah, well, I'm trying to learn from Nick, not the late part, but the rest of it. Hopefully things will get a little smoother with each show that we do. All right, so what do we have as a story here? First of all, there is video of this event available, but I'm not going to share it here during the show. You can simply find it on Google. All you really need to know is that the cops showed up uh, because someone called them, uh, apparently to inform them that he'd stuck his arm in a tiger cage and the tiger was doing tiger things to his arm. Uh, basically eating the guy's arm uh, alive. Oh, yes, of course. Happy New Year to everyone. Hope everyone had a safe and happy New Year. Isn't uh, too under the weather this morning after celebrating last night. Uh, so we're here to talk about the Naples Tiger shooting. Um, as always, folks, um, I appreciate all the comments. If you could hit subscribe, I guess I'm supposed to ask you to do that because that helps with the algorithm, I'm told. And if there's a like or thumbs up button, uh, that would be fantastic as well. I will stay on to answer questions, but unfortunately, we can only do that for the super chat questions. Otherwise, there's simply too many comments for me to scroll through. Uh, so if you have questions as we go along and you'd like to get them answered, I'm happy to do that. Uh, just make sure they're in super chat form so they're highlighted for me. So again, there is video of this event. Unfortunately, um, it's a little grotesque, and I'm not sure how YouTube will react to me, including it. Yes, I know it's available on YouTube from the law enforcement department that showed up there. You can find it there. The only thing you really need to know, again, is the guy stuck his arm in a tiger change, and the tiger began to eat his arm. That's what the police uh, saw when they uh, when they showed up at the scene. Unclear to me what had actually been communicated to them before they showed up, but that's certainly what they found there. By the way, guys, I've been getting a lot of questions about the uh, the law of self-defense mug. And the answer is yes, uh, you can get your own law of self-defense mug, law of self-defense on the front, hard to kill, hard to convict on the back. They are made in the USA. So unfortunately, that makes them a bit pricier than we would like. Uh, but we didn't like the Chinese one, so we sent all those back, and we got made in the USA mugs. And if you're interested in that, you can get one of those for your desk at work at lawselfdefense.com slash mug. So let's get back to this event at Naples. Um, and the question is, first of all, we need to keep in mind that obviously this was a bad outcome. We would all prefer that the tiger had not been shot. Uh, and it's normal and human to feel like the fact that the tiger was shot, that there was a bad outcome, means that something criminal must have happened here. Uh, but frankly, folks, I expect that nothing criminal happened here, either in terms of the police use of force or in terms of the conduct by the man whose arm got chewed up. Um, maybe there's some criminal property crime committed there, um, but I doubt it. Uh, I, I don't see any criminal intent there. And unfortunately, for better or worse, uh, being stupid is not a crime. And the police are obliged to defend human life, uh, even if it's not particularly smart human life. That's the way the system works. Uh, the police don't only pretend smart people, uh, defend smart people, I should say. 
And of course, they don't really often know all the circumstances about what was going on uh, prior to the point of their arrival. They can only deal with the point of the arrival. So normally, of course, when we're talking about use of force events here, we're doing our legal analysis. We're talking about one person using force against another person. Uh, and that's generally will be justified as a legal defense of self-defense or defense of others or defense of property, depending on the circumstances. And here's where we get to see if I'm able to pull up some little PowerPoint slides that I prepared. Let's see if I can effectively share these. Share, share screen. There we go. That worked, except now the background is a bit annoying. Let me see if I can do something about, about that. Yeah, that's a little better. So self-defense. So when we talk about self-defense, and again, self-defense here is a term of art, right? We, we've repeatedly run into this issue of how words are used colloquially among the general public in normal life, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but those words often have very specific and different meanings. Uh, when they're used as legal terms of art, when they're used in a technical sense. We saw this in the case of the Dante Wright shooting uh, with Kim Potter. Uh, most normal people will use the word reckless in much the same way as they might say careless or negligent. We, we tend to use those terms interchangeable in normal conversational English. But in terms of those terms as a legal term of art, they're they're completely different. Uh, negligence occurs when you should have been aware of some risk you were creating, but you weren't consciously aware. Now, a reasonable person would have been aware, uh, but for whatever reason, you were not consciously aware. And negligence does not give rise to criminal liability. It gives rise to civil liability, but not criminal. Recklessness as a legal term of art means not only were you creating an unjustified risk, but you knew you were doing it and engaged in the conduct anyway. And that does give rise to criminal liability. So although we use these terms like negligence and recklessness largely interchangeably in conversational English, in the legal context, they mean quite different things with quite different consequences uh, for which state of mind is actually present. The same is true of self-defense. We, we use in conversational English self-defense to mean a great many things. Uh, if we're uh, attacked by another human being, and we use force to defend against that attack, we would naturally call it self-defense. That's also the legal use of the term. If we see someone else attacked by another human being and we use force against that attacker in defense of that third person, again, we would argue that's a self-defense justification or more precisely a defense of others justification. Uh, if our property was being taken or intruded upon in the sense of an occupied car or a home or a business, uh, and we use force to stop that taking or to stop that intrusion into the property, again, that would be a justification of use of force where we're using force upon another person that fits within the legal term of art um, meaning of a justified use of force or self-defense. In fact, specifically what we're talking about when we use that as a legal term of art is that we're defending ourselves, or we're defending an other person, or we're acting in defensive property. But in all those cases, we're using force against another person, force against another human being. And by the way, that defensive property also applies to defense of animals, particularly defense of pets. And I know those of you who own pets feel like your pets are as much a member of the family as the humans are, maybe more than the humans are, depending 
on the humans in your family. Uh, but pets are mere personal property. And generally speaking, you can only use non-deadly force in defense of mere personal property in the absence of a threat to persons, in the absence of a threat to highly defensible property. And by the way, folks, if you don't know the difference between um, those terms, uh, simple personal property, mere personal property, highly defensible property, uh, then you might consider taking care of that lack of expertise and consider coming to our Law of Self-Defense Advanced class. This is a full day class on self-defense law taking place on Saturday, January 8th. So I believe that's only, that's exactly a week from today. We only teach this class about once every year, once every two years. So if you miss this one, it'll be a while before it comes around. It's a full day class taught live by me using Zoom to stream to your uh, computer at the convenience and safety of your home. Um, it's the equivalent of a full day, uh, full semester law school seminar class, uh, but taught in plain English. And it covers all these concepts we'll talk about today and much, much, much more, as you might imagine, from seven or eight hours of instruction. Uh, so if you'd care to really have a mastery of all these things we talk about and get it all in one day, then I would encourage you to take a look at this Law Self-Defense Advanced class. And by the way, if you can't make the specific date, um, but you nevertheless register for the class, we'll make the recording of the class available to you for a two-week period uh, after that Saturday. So if you can't make it on Saturday because you have other commitments, but you'd still like to partake of the class contents, you'll be able to do that using the recorded replay that we'll make available to all registered students for that class. So don't worry overly much if you can't particularly uh, make the Saturday, Saturday, January 8th date. We'll still make the content available to you. Okay, back to, oh, and that, of course, is all available at this, see if I can make this work. At lawselfdefense.com slash advanced is where you can learn more about how to sign up for that class a week from today, folks. So it's closing in fast. If you're considering it at all, I would encourage you to sign up while signing up is still possible, while seats are still available. Okay, take that back down. Go back now to my little PowerPoint slides. Here we go. Yeah, Nick does this with such facility. Here we go. So normally when you're using force against others, it's defense of self, defense of others, or defense of property, but we're using force against another human being. Uh, but this is not the proper legal justification if we're talking about using force against an animal. Animals are not human beings. The legal standards for use of force against an animal are different and lower, uh, although in some ways more difficult, you might be surprised to learn, uh, than using force against another human being. Let's see, put this back into a nicer mode. Self-defense, defense of others, defense of property, not the proper legal justification for the use of force to justify the use of force upon another animal. If we're talking about using force upon another animal, we're not really referring to our state's self-defense statutes or defense of other statutes or defense of property statutes. We're referring to a very different legal doctrine of justification, and it comes under different names. It comes sometimes called the necessity defense, sometimes called the choice of evils defense, sometimes the doctrine of competing harms defense, sometimes the doctrine of lesser evils. I think I have examples of uh, 
of all of these. Let me see if I can pull that. Let's see. I thought I had examples of all of these. I do. So I just I just selected some states more or less at random, uh, just to illustrate the various ways that different states approach this. But here's uh, the Arizona statute, Arizona uh, revised statutes 13-417. They call this defense, this legal justification, the necessity defense. Uh, I won't read it word for word because I don't want to do that for each of the states I have examples of. But um, hmm. but I do have other examples. I'll step through kind of a model statute of this uh, that pretty much applies in all 50 states. Then we have New Hampshire. They call it the doctrine of competing harms. And then we have, yeah, I should have thought of a better way to do this, I suppose. Then we have Oregon. They call it the choice of evils, but really it's all the same thing. It's all a way of balancing. Okay. There we go. These are all ways of balancing uh, different harms. So we have two harms, and we're choosing which one is more necessary or which one is the evil we prefer or which one is uh, among these competing harms do we prefer or which one is the lesser evil. But we're looking at two bad things, and we're choosing one of them. And if we choose appropriately... Well, then our use of force based on our choice is legally justified and carries no criminal liability, whatever. Uh, if we choose poorly, if we don't meet the elements, the conditions of the necessity defense by whatever name in your particular state, then our use of force was not justified. And again, generally, this is not a use of force against another person. All right. We're talking about use of force against property. Animals are property. Uh, if we were talking about use of force against a person, then the applicable justification would be self-defense, defense of others, defense of property. So the necessity of defense applies when we're not talking about the use of force of uh, against another person, but the use of force against property, and that includes against animals. So the fundamental elements of a necessity defense are that the harm being prevented is serious. So usually what the danger is, is death or serious bodily injury to a human being. That's what you're trying to prevent. If the harm is minor, then this necessity defense justification won't apply. It's also required that there's no adequate, practical, and legal alternative that would avoid the harm. So you can't simply call for police, call for the fire department, call for help generally. Um, there's nothing else to be done. Because of exigent circumstances, the harm will have occurred by the time any help or alternative uh, would be able to resolve whatever the danger is. Also, very important, and this is the balancing part of this, the harm prevented, the harm that you're trying to avoid has to be greater than the harm you're causing. That's the doctrine of lesser evils. You're doing something that would normally be considered wrong, arguably criminal, but you're justified in committing that wrongful act because by doing so, you're avoiding a greater harmful act. Again, usually a serious act, a serious harm, death or serious bodily injury. And your belief in the necessity to do this is reasonable, both objectively and subjectively. So subjectively, you have a genuine good faith belief 
in the need to use force against whatever this property is, and a hypothetical, reasonable, and prudent person in your circumstances would have shared that belief. And finally, and this is important, comes up quite often in these cases, one of the most common ways a necessity defense fails uh, when raised at trial, when it does fail, is that you cannot have created or substantially caused or contributed to the harm avoided. So if you cause the harm, well, we'd still like you to do what you can to mitigate that harm, but you don't get to claim the necessity defense and justification and be clear of criminal liability. So what would be a classic example of this? A classic example might be that you're walking down the street on a hot, hot summer day, and you walk by a parked car, and you happen to see in the back of the car, uh, there's an infant in a baby seat strapped in, the windows are up, the doors are locked, car's probably inside the car, maybe 120 degrees, the baby's clearly in distress, could die at any moment, maybe it's already convulsing. What are you going to do? Well, you can break the window of the car to unlock the door to get the baby out of the car. Of course, normally, breaking the window of someone else's car would be a criminal offense. It's, it's destruction of property. You're not normally privileged to do that. But here, under the necessity defense of the doctrine of lesser harms, you're committing a small harm in order to avoid a greater harm. You're breaking the window, sure enough, normally a criminal offense, but you're doing it to save the life of the baby. So the harm being prevented is serious, prospectively death or serious bodily injury. Uh, the baby's already in convulsion, so there's no adequate practical or legal alternative that would avoid the harm. You can't simply call for the police or the fire department and wait for them to show up. Baby might well be dead by then. The harm being prevented, uh, the death of the baby is greater than the harm you're causing, the breaking of the window. And your belief is, we'll presume for our purposes here, is reasonable. Obviously, if this was a cool day, the baby was not convulsing, maybe a reasonable person would not agree in your assessment of the necessity to break the window. That would be a different circumstance. And you did not lock the baby in the car yourself, where it would potentially suffer heat stroke. You did not create or substantially contribute to the harm avoided. That would be a very traditional application of the necessity defense. Now, one thing I have to caution is that the necessity defense is often, or in many cases, in many states, what might be called the true affirmative defense. Now, I really don't like the phrase affirmative defense. It's thrown around a lot. And there was a time in American uh, legal history where affirmative defense actually meant the same thing in every state, in which case using it was fine. But over the decades, the phrase affirmative defense has changed its meaning in different states in different ways. So now the phrase affirmative defense means different things in different states. And if you're a lawyer practicing law in one state where everyone's using the same definition of affirmative defense, it's fine to use that phrase. But the moment you begin to have a discussion across state lines, like we are here, uh, presumably there's people from all 50 states involved participating here, uh, then each of those states has a different meaning for affirmative defense or, or potentially does. And people are using the same phrase to mean different things. So what does affirmative defense mean in a traditional sense? It means a defense in which the defendant must concede the underlying conduct. So you're not saying it wasn't you, you didn't do it. You're saying I, it was me, I did it. And you, the defendant, bear the burden of persuasion to prove that justification by a preponderance of the evidence, a majority of the evidence. So in our, our baby in the car scenario, you're saying, yeah, I broke the window. That was me. I did it to save the baby. And I can prove that by a majority of the evidence. Now, self-defense 
the legal defense of self-defense, the use of force against another person or defense of others or defense of property, all of these used to be true affirmative defenses, meaning that you had to both concede the underlying conduct and you, the defendant, bore the burden of persuasion to prove that justification of self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence, by a majority of the evidence. And until two or three years ago, there was still a state, Ohio, that held that self-defense was a true affirmative defense. So in Ohio, you had to concede that it was you, which you still have to do everywhere, and you had to prove self-defense. Fortunately, that's not the case anywhere in any state. Even Ohio has now changed to join the majority of states in the context of the justification of self-defense, defense of others, or defense of property. Today, although you still have to concede that it was you who used force in self-defense, defense of others, or defense of property, today the burden of persuasion, what you might call the burden of proof, is not on the defendant to prove it by a preponderance, but on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And this distinction matters. If, if we imagine, I'm going to show you a couple of bars here. If you imagine that what the defense has to do in court is the red portion of these bars, and what the state has to do in court is the blue portion of these bars, uh, well, under the modern view of self-defense, where it's not a true affirmative defense, where the burden is on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, the state has to do that blue portion. They have to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a very high burden. And all the defense has to do is a little bit. Just make sure there's at least a reasonable doubt that it could have been self-defense and the jury will be instructed to acquit. So that's how self-defense works. A true affirmative defense and how self-defense used to work is that the defense had to prove self-defense by a majority, a preponderance of the evidence. So instead of that little red box at the top, they had to do with the big red box at the bottom bar is showing. And it's a huge difference, folks. Uh, and again, until two or three years ago, Ohio applied that lower bar as its legal standard for the burden of proof on self-defense. So you could have exactly identical fact patterns in Ohio and, say, Pennsylvania, exactly the same facts. And in Pennsylvania, it would be an easy acquittal. And in Ohio, it would be a conviction merely because of the difference on this burden of proof, who bears it and to what degree. And I mention this because if you use force against another person, uh, you'd think that would be a harder standard, a higher standard. Uh, but in fact, if you use force against another person, this burdens on the state to disprove your justification beyond a reasonable doubt. If you use force against an animal and it's a true affirmative defense in your jurisdiction, you have to prove the justification for the use of the force against an animal by a preponderance of the evidence. So the burden's on you by 51% instead of the burden being only to maintain some reasonable doubt. So that's the distinction that matters here if you're ever considering arguing the necessity of defense for a use of force. Now, let's look at these elements again. We already stepped through this, but in the context of this particular case, the officers show up. There's a guy with his arm through a lion cage, the lion's, uh, sorry, tiger. Uh, the tiger's going munch, munch, munch on the guy's arm. Uh, clearly, the guy's in great distress, um, likely has his brachial artery slashed at any moment, in which case he's, he's dead in a few seconds. Um, the cops are there to save that person's life if they can, folks. Um, I know many of us might emotionally feel like, well, why didn't they just shoot the guy instead of the tiger? The tiger wasn't doing anything wrong. The tiger was doing tiger stuff. 
Uh, and that's a perfectly valid emotional take on this situation, I guess. Everyone's unhappy that the tiger was shot, uh, but it's not a legally correct take. The officers show up. They see a tiger eating a guy's arm. Uh, they're going to do what they need to do to save that guy's life. And if that means they're going to use force on that tiger, which they obviously did, they killed and shot the tiger, uh, then their legal justification for that is going to be the necessity defense. So these are the questions we would ask. Do, does the officer's use of force against the tiger, the shooting of the tiger, meet these conditions? Was the harm prevented serious? Well, it was this guy's death. If they just let the lion continue to eat his arm. Was there any adequate practical and legal alternative that would have avoided the harm other than shooting him? Well, not in the time context that would have been useful here. I mean, in theory, someone could have gone and found a tranquilizer gun, I guess, um, but they didn't have that with them and time was of the essence. So if there had been a second cop standing right next to the guy with the gun, and I don't know how tranquilizer guns really work, uh, but if you imagine it could have instantly stopped the tiger's attack, um, perhaps that would have been a reasonable alternative. But they did not actually have that option, that alternative. So it was not practical and therefore not legally required. Uh, was the harm prevented greater than the harm caused? And I know many of you might think that um, the life of a rare tiger is more valuable than the life of someone stupid enough to feed their arm to a tiger. It's hard to disagree with that assessment, but legally speaking, the law will always value human life over the life of the animal. That's just the way it is. That's certainly how the cops are going to react. Um, was the officer's belief both subjectively, subjectively and objectively reasonable? Here we're asking, did he genuinely believe this guy's arm was being eaten by a lion? And was that belief one that would also have been shared by a hypothetical, reasonable, and prudent person? I think the answer there is clearly yes. And did the police do anything that created or substantially contributed to the harm involved? They didn't feed this guy's arm to the cage. He did that himself. So under the necessity of defense, these officers' use of force would meet all of these conditions. The officer, and you might know this intuitively, but this is why we do the legal analysis. So, you know, this is how it actually works in a nuts and bolts way, would be justified uh, under the necessity of defense, the doctrine of competing harms, the doctrine of lesser harms, um, and doctrine of lesser uh, evils, whatever phrase your particular state uses, uh, they every state has some version of this necessity defense, and that's what would apply uh, in this particular case. Uh, now, the, the other question we might ask is, well, does the guy who fed his arm into the cage bear any liability here? Um, frankly, it would be hard to see criminal liability. Criminal liability would require at least recklessness, uh, that he was consciously aware that he was creating a risk to others. I, I, I don't know. Was he consciously aware the lion was going to eat his arm? M maybe. I don't know. There's, I don't see evidence of that. It's hard to believe that would be the case, that he fed his arm into a cage so the lion would eat it. Maybe he was stupid enough to think he could pet a lion. Maybe he should have known that if you put his arm into a lion's cage, it was likely to be munch, munch, munched by the lion. Sorry, tiger, tiger. <laughs> Sorry, folks. I'm not an animal expert. Uh, by the tiger, maybe he should have known that, uh, but should have known of a risk is negligence. It's not a basis for criminal liability. Uh, did know, consciously knew, and disregarded that risk 
that is a basis for criminal liability, but then you would need evidence to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so I could see a basis perhaps for, for civil liability here, for negligence liability. The zoo lost a, what I imagine was a very valuable animal because of this guy's uh, negligent conduct, conduct he should have known, even if he didn't consciously know, but should have known, uh, created this risk that the lion would eat him or at least his arm. Um, and the cops, he, whom he apparently called himself, remarkably enough, uh, that the cops would have to shoot the lion to get it to stop eating his arm. Maybe, uh, but it hardly matters, folks, because civil negligence only matters if there's money to get. You go to court, you win in civil court, you get a judgment for X amount of dollars, and now you have to collect that judgment. And that's largely on you. Plus, it's largely a function of whether the person you won the judgment against has any money to take. You can't squeeze blood from a stone. And my understanding is this guy was working there as a third-party contractor in some pretty low-level job. Uh, he probably doesn't have anything to take. Uh, the company might. And there are cases, of course, in which uh, an employee commits an act of negligence and the company is held responsible. Normally, however, the act of negligence would be something within the scope of employment. Uh, so perhaps if this guy's job was to actually feed the lion, the tiger, feed the tiger, and there was a particular way to do that, and he did it wrong, he did that negligently, so that fell within the scope of employment, he was negligent within the scope of employment, he's effectively an agent of his employer, so the employer could be vicariously liable for his negligence. Sure, that argument could be made. But here it looks, I expect his job had nothing to do with interacting with that tiger at all, in which case it was outside the scope of employment uh, and likely not vicariously liable for the for the company that employed him. But again, my expertise is use of force law, not civil law. So if there's civil attorneys out there who'd like to express a more informed opinion, um, that would be that would be good to know. Of course, there's also the uh, flip side of the coin which is whether or not the zoo has any liability to him. Uh, should the uh, tigers be, when unattended by zoo personnel, uh, be contained in a manner that a person can't put their hand through the cage and get their arm eaten? Uh, was it effectively, when they know, I don't know what this guy's job was, but let's imagine it's some kind of cleaning job after hours. Um, <clears throat> could this lion held in a manner in which it was accessible to someone who has no training or expertise in the handling or management of lions, uh, might it be an attractive nuisance? An attractive nuisance is something that's uh, dangerous, but attractive to people. Usually this applies to children, but I suppose it could apply to adults. Um, but it would be like a pool without a fence around it. Uh, could this tiger be deemed a, an attractive nuisance to these after-hours personnel who might be stupid enough to try to pet an actual tiger and think it's cute because they saw a tiger walking around a, uh, a hotel room in the Hangover movie? I don't know, but uh, civil litigation doesn't need to be particularly rational to be brought. You know, Often the cases are brought with the expectation that there'll simply be a settlement to make the problem go away. Uh, so certainly... That's a possibility here. Uh, again, I'll leave all that to civil attorneys who can bring more expertise uh, to bear. 
All right, folks. So let me now scroll through here, see if there's any specific questions I need to address. Uh, if you would like questions addressed or you have them, Super Chat's the way to go. I'm looking for the colored comments to see what I need to cover. Boom, boom, boom. Why didn't they taser, taser, taser the tiger? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's a serious question, uh, but I don't know. To tell you the truth, I, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's ever tased the tiger, if there was would be any expectation of uh, that it would work, um, or at least work as effectively and reliably as the pistol round would go. Um, it's an interesting, interesting question. Be good to get some information from the taser company. Uh, they tried banging on the cage first, and I would have preferred they fire a couple warning shots to try and scare the tiger away. Well, folks, that would not be a good idea, From certainly from a, a legal perspective. Every time you fire a warning shot from a gun, that bullet is going to continue traveling until it hits something. And that something could be another person. Bullets ricochet. They bounce around. They are dangerous. They are deadly force dangerous to anybody in the vicinity, including the guy whose arm is being eaten, including the cop who fires the shot in close quarters, including to his partners, anyone else who might be around. Uh, so you're creating a deadly force threat with no reasonable expectation that it would stop anything from happening, right? We're speculating that it might frighten away the the, um, the tiger. Uh, there's no reason to believe that would be the case. We're merely hoping that might be the case. So we're creating a deadly force threat to everybody in the vicinity without any reasonable expectation that it would, in, in fact, have done anything uh, to mitigate the the arm munching by the tiger. So now warning shots are, are rarely ever a good idea and not certainly not in confined spaces like here. Uh, does the zoo have a civil case against the police? Nope, for reasons I already discussed, for the individual or his employer. Already spoke to all of that. So the civil stuff I would uh, leave to civil attorneys uh, against the police. I think the police have that justification of the uh, necessity defense pretty clearly. Let's see. Bum, 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 bum. Let's see. Here's a question. Why did you choose this career path? And if you hadn't done this, what would you be doing? Well, before I was doing this, I was a diesel mechanic. So I guess that's what I'd be doing. I don't know. Uh, nothing fancy, folks. I know diesel mechanic sounds like uh, you're doing fancy work. I mostly worked on garbage trucks uh, and tractor trailers, long distance highway tractor trailers, uh, but a lot of garbage trucks. Uh, so that's what I was doing before I went to law school. Uh, why did I go to law school? I like to argue, so may as well get paid for it. And uh, and it appears that uh, I had an aptitude for it. Uh, here's a comment. Tiger got fed a delicacy and got shot for it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really an unfortunate circumstance, right? It's one we don't really contemplate, at least within our societal framework. The tiger really did nothing wrong. I mean, to the extent that tigers can have a morality, the tiger was doing what tigers do. You you put a, a, a three-foot length a chunk of meat in its cage, it's likely to start eating that chunk of meat and not care so much if it's still attached to a living human being. So 
I feel bad for the tiger. Um, but the way our societal framework works is the human being comes first. And if that means a tiger has to be shot, then that's what happens. Same thing, of course, with the, the Harambe case, with the, uh, the, the gorilla case some years ago, uh, where there was a, apparently a, a, a child who'd fallen into the pen. Um, and there was concern that, well, I mean, you know, gorillas are very powerful animals, uh, would have no difficulty at all killing a child. So the shot was taken and Harambe was killed. And many people, of course, had very similar sentiments about it. Let's see. And Wendy sends me five bucks for a New Year coffee. Thank you very much, Wendy. I really appreciate that. Uh, Crusader Saracen says, you should talk to Nick about the case of YouTuber Boogie. Never heard of him, uh, but that's not a surprise. Firing off a warning shot and the whole debacle and his upcoming trial. I'd be glad, uh, you know, Nick knows I'm happy to be on a show anytime. Uh, if you'd like me to be on to talk about that, I would be more than happy to do that. All right, folks, I think we are at the end. I hope I didn't miss anybody. No, I don't think I did. All right, folks, reasonably concise live stream today. We're getting a, hopefully a little bit better each time we do one of these things. And I will um, look forward to speaking to all of you soon. You know, I, I was going to schedule these live streams like once a week, which has was kind of our traditional practice in the past. Uh, but uh, frankly, I think we'll let it be driven by events in the news and questions that are sent in. And that might be twice a week or every three days or every two days or maybe every day. Uh, but it won't be for eight hours at a time like Rakita Law does it. That Nick is uh, amazing at being able to do that. Uh, our live streaming will be shorter, more focused, more use of force specific content like this. And uh, with that, I will just remind all of you, uh, well, for one thing, don't forget our law of self-defense. Whoops. Live uh, law of self-defense advanced class being taught live a week from today, Saturday, January 8th. We only teach the class once every year or two, folks. So if you'd like a law school level course of instruction on use of force law taught in plain English and to get all that mastery in a single day, then I would encourage you to take a look at this class. You can learn more about it at lawofselfdefense.com slash advanced. After Saturday, it'll be a year or two before it's available again. And if you'd be interested in a Law of Self-Defense mug, many people have been asking. You can get those at lawofselfdefense.com slash mug, Law of Self-Defense on the front. And as we say here at Law of Self-Defense, and I'll mention it now as our closing, remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, and that's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. And you can do all that at lawselfdefense.com. All right, folks, until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.